It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. It's easy, and usually justifiable, to mock football's marketing machine. But whoever came up with the line about the Premier League being the best league in the world has at least some grasp of reality. All four Premier League clubs have qualified for the last 16 of the Champions League. They're all likely to end up as group winners. Chelsea need to match the result of Juventus in this week's final round of group games to join the top-seeded teams in the knockout draw. I suppose the question is, Glenn, are they capable of retaining the title? Well, you have to say they are, obviously. I mean, they... Yeah, they're just, just they're a stronger team than they were last year with the addition of uh, Lukaku. You say the fullback. I mean, obviously Chilwell's injured at the moment, but I mean James has has come on even in the last year from where he was. So I'd say they they look a they look a stronger side. And Chilwell's had a full season, a full preseason with them. The question is, of course, sometimes it's hard. It's hard, obviously you're usually harder to retain something than it is to win the first time. And you know, as the champions are there to be shot at, and of course this year, I guess they're more entrenched and involved in the domestic front in terms of trying to win the Premier League. But yeah, they've, they've certainly got a chance, and, and the biggest threat is quite likely to come from another Premier League club. Because I mean, as it, in football as in life, money equals power, and the Premier League has a greater depth of cash, and therefore has the you know most powerful clubs, except with the obvious exceptions of one or two um, individual clubs from elsewhere in the continent. When you look at Chelsea. Migs, it was a statement victory over Juventus, wasn't it, after having lost to them earlier on in the group. What did that say about Chelsea, but also what did it say about Juventus and, by extension, the quality of Serie A at the moment? Yeah, it was a real display of power as well as a, a display of the gap in quality and gap really in financial power as well between the best in England or England generally and Italy. I mean, Syria is going through, I suppose, an interesting situation right now because Juventus have been the power for so long, nine titles in a row, that that run finally broken by Inter, which is overall healthier for the competition. But and, and, and I think Juventus are, are a very specific 
there's there's something very very specific consequences from this kind of post COVID era, basically all changed the dynamic of the game where they're a club with a load of pre COVID contracts that can't move any of those players on, and it because of the contracts they're on, and it's created the situation where even though they actually have made some moves to try and bring the squad into the next era. You know, there are some really good young players at Juventus, with Chiesa among the most prominent. They've still just got a core of players from before that ultimately mean it's difficult to move on to a completely new approach. Now, there's also an irony there in the fact that having having got rid of Ronaldo and I suppose you would say hastening the move to a new era, this also marks a point where suddenly after two years of trying, you know, these... Um, coaches perceived as progressive or modern who Ronaldo wouldn't necessarily fit well they've gone back to a, a kind of an arch pragmatist in Allegri and suddenly after so long where they got to the top of Italian football through having such a clearly defined identity suddenly they're struggling for one again and it does mean even though it's been such a good Serie A race this season you only have to look at the European positions to show that Italy's top quality is some way off the top of the game, but then that's not a unique situation because it's the way the direction European football is going, where so much of the money, in fact, I would say a, a concerning amount when you look at the last broadcasting deal, is going towards the Premier League. And as you say, the best league in the world has almost become a, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how it's been marketed. The market has the marketing has been worked, or has worked well, and it's just it's created this this virtuous cycle for the Premier League, if a concerning one for the rest of the game, where more and more money goes into England at the expense of everything else, and it means I think so. Like the the question you asked at the top, it's almost not about whether Chelsea can win the Champions League. It's really how many competitors are actually going to have that, that might take their trophy outside of England. Well, when you look at Manchester City, Glenn. You know, we expect them to complete the formalities in Leipzig on Tuesday. Inevitably, everything will revolve around Pep Guardiola, given his past indiscretions and, and you know, temptations or succumbing to the temptations to tinker. There was an interesting line that he came up with saying, I'm not going to train another English club. What did you draw from that? Is that, is that the first sign that maybe his club career is starting to draw to a close? Possibly. I mean, look, he had four years at Barcelona, didn't he, when he started. Then he had a year off, he went to New York and relaxed. Then three years at Bayern, no break, straight to the city. He said five years this summer, contract will take him to seven years, I guess. 51 next month. But I mean, so when the contract's done, he's going to be what? Uh, he's still going to be early 50s. Possibly, it depends what options come up. I mean, yeah, okay, so if he isn't going to go back to, you know, or look at the places where he's been, the only really option, if he's not going to go back to Spain, I mean, I suppose he could go back to Barcelona at some point. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't rule that out if they're, if they're on a better footing than they are at the moment. Doesn't do anyone else in England. Probably doesn't go back to Germany. As we've just been discussing, you can't see any great attraction going to Italy at the moment. Though, uh, you know, again, who knows where we'll be in five years down the line. PSG, I suppose, is always going to be on the horizon. For They're always going to be linked with the top coaches. But he's still a young man. Where will be the next temptation? International football. I, mean, I think we're pretty clear that given the intensity he puts into it, he'll have done 10 years of management without a break when his contract city's over. And I suspect he will then look to take a year or two out. But you know, then he's going to be mid-50s, 
potentially still another decade at least involved in football. You can't see someone like that just wanting to sort of sit on those uh, UEFA and FIFA committees and watch matches and write reports and occasionally do some consultancy roles. So if you send me back, I guess the problem, you sort of start cutting off one or two avenues, don't you, after a while? We'll see, never say never, as they say. Hmm. When you talk about his intensity, it makes, how would you describe his handling at the moment of Jack Grealish? You know, he's he's characteristically put pressure on him in the last couple of weeks by stressing that, look, he doesn't want to wait until next season for him to justify himself. Yeah, there was a little bit of a shift in tone, I suppose, just before the Villa game. And maybe that's because he knew it was going to be, shall we say, a delicate evening uh, <laughs> for uh, for Grealish, where he suddenly kind of, you know, he, 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 I suppose, he literally said that Grealish's performances have been better than maybe the player himself perceives. But it is almost a kind of that classic adaptation period of Guardiola, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the, the this this is basically why his teams are so good when they reach top level. Because the system is actually quite difficult to learn. You know, it's it's been said by so many players in the past, but it's essentially like learning football anew. And almost you've got to forget everything you know because you're and build up a new mental architecture of the game. And, and that, that that is the way modern football is going and it's why coaches like Tuchel and Guardiola and Klopp are, you know, form this elite band and why you're left behind if you don't have anything to kind of buy buy into these principles, as we've seen with Manchester United. And, and that, it will just make it, for a lot of players, it's down to their, I suppose, their tactical awareness, their tactical appreciation and how willing they are to adapt. But I think Grealish, to be fair, has shown that willingness I think for everyone that knows him, would also call him, you know, he's one of those players that does breathe the game in that way and is willing to learn. So I wouldn't really have any concerns there. Although maybe he could perhaps, that's what I mean, City are already true, but maybe that's one way the remaining Champions League game could be of value in that we could see maybe another night where, where Grealish steps up a little bit in the competition. Hmm. Liverpool end in the San Siro against Milan. We We know the... You know, potential complicating factors at a domestic level, you know, they're likely to be compromised by call-ups to the African Cup of Nations, Glenn. Does that mean that they potentially got a better chance of winning the Champions League than the Premier League? Because obviously, you know, we don't resume after this week's round until uh, mid-Feb. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, from a Liverpool point of view, it's hanging in there during that period in sort of January, early February when the... Um, Mane, Salah and uh, Naby Keita go off to uh, AFCON. The, but what they have got, they've got maybe less so up front, but they've got some really talented young players at the club. So you imagine they, they're quite well covered in some ways. There's no real cover for, for Mane and Salah, though. I mean, obviously, if Firmino's fit, you've got Jota, then you've got two players there. But if I imagine it may be a case, see where they are in early February. And then if they're still up with the top two and they've got those players coming back, Oh, sorry, if they're still up there with Chelsea and City and uh, they've got the players coming back, then very much the Premier League is a possibility. If not, then maybe it is a case of prioritising the Champions League and you know, because it is a long season with lots of matches and I certainly expect them to rotate in this game this week and maybe see some of those young players. But it's yeah, it'd be a holding case trying to get through those matches when those players are away. Yeah, we, we we've spoken about the you know the mistakes perhaps enshrined by the whole system of of, of the Ballon d'Or voting, which basically 
almost enshrines celebrity over achievement. Mo Salah, I know it's an old question, but I, I think it's worth revisiting, Megs. On current form, and when you look at someone like Lionel Messi going through the motions at PSG in many games, he's the best player in the world, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. And the way, I mean, when I kind of think about this question, I almost, like, it, it's almost a case that I play a little game with myself where basically if, you, if you're a defender or you're an opposition team and you imagine what player you'd least like getting the ball in any given moment because of the damage they can do to you and how much they can hurt you, I would say right now it's Salah. I mean, obviously Messi's ceiling as a player is higher but now it's a question of how how often he he gets to that level, and I was quite I, I was at the Paris Saint Germain Man City game last week. I was actually at both both of the games, and while the first one was of course decorated by Messi's brilliant goal, which seemed his announcement moment to Paris Saint Germain, he hasn't really completely kicked on since then. To the point where the, the performance in Manchester last week, I was actually quite shocked by it. Myself and my colleague Mark Critchley, just towards the end of the game, there was a point where we were. Um, when Paris Saint-Germain should have been chasing the match, we, we we were kind of watching Messi. And he was literally just standing there for, for about four minutes. Now, I, I know that's always been a feature of his game where he, he he waits, he conserves energy, and then when he needs to get involved, he bursts. But equally, I've seen him in situations where when a Bar- when Barcelona weren't on it, he would immediately get involved and try and lift them, lift them back into the game. Whereas it was a much more passive Messi. And against that, you've got, as you say it's just it's the sonic blur of Salah right now and just how many dimensions there are to his game how how he moves what what he can do to you when he's on the ball and the one caveat I would say is actually I don't think he warranted the Ballon d'Or this year and in fact I can actually see the rationale of Messi winning it even though if I, would, I wouldn't necessarily have voted for him if I had a vote because, you know, he was instrumental in winning a major trophy. And I do think, given its international award, it should go beyond the domestic. And Salah, ultimately, last season was, what, they went out in the Champions League in the quarterfinal. Now, I probably would have given it to Kante, actually, I must say, for because because the unprecedented situation of so many man-of-the-match performances in a row in a victorious Champions League campaign. But, yeah, in terms of what someone can do to you on a pitch at any given moment the most dangerous player in the world right now, I think, is uh, is Mohamed Salah. Yeah, he certainly deserved better than to finish seventh. I know that for a fact. When you look at teams outside England, Glenn, let's focus on a couple of them. And that's what well, actually let's, let's continue to focus on PSG. Is there a case to be made that that front three is almost unmanageable because it's almost like a force commercially and in a sporting sense, you know, of its own making? Well, it does. You do get the feeling watching them that there's a lack of commitment and desire amongst them as a, as a unit. I mean, it doesn't really work for the way Pochettino likes his teams to play, obviously. But I mean, it's surprising in a way. You might have thought that. I guess they might have hoped that, that having the three of them together would have sparked a competitive edge between them, or to try, you know, be the best, be the, the leading light in that front three. But it hasn't really worked out like that. I mean, there have been moments when they've connected and. and balanced off each other but you know, it looks like Messi's there because basically there was nowhere else to go and Bappa's there because they wouldn't let him leave and Neymar's been slightly put out that he's no longer the main man so all three of them look as if they slightly resent being there rather than you know, looking and think, okay what can we create what can we do here 
it's a, it's a tough thing for a manager to pull to, to together to do to get those players to really want to focus yeah, and work together for the benefit of the team rather than regard themselves as individuals. You, know, you look at the rest of the side, I mean, it does seem you know, it's hugely unbalanced in, in various areas and the City game was quite revealing in terms of how, how dominant City were. When you've got those players, it's like a heavyweight you know, with a good punch. You've always got a chance when you've got players like that on the pitch. Yeah, and the margins at this level aren't that you know, are pretty tight, particularly when you get into uh, you know, two-legged matches. So you get, you know, obviously, good keeper, two good keepers. So you've always got a puncher's chance when you've got players like that. But you'd have to say you can't really see them coming through all those knockout rounds and win the competition. Mm. If you're looking at the most likely contenders from mainland Europe, Migs, is there any point looking beyond Bayern Munich? No, I don't think so. I think they're the only club at the moment that comes close to the main Premier League three. And, and also have a proper ideology there. The one thing I, I, I do, I agree with Glenn about Paris Saint-Germain. But the one thing I would say is that once it gets into the Rackets Ages and it becomes a cup, there is, there, this is something that has been eroding over the years as football becomes increasingly ideological. But there is still, it can still happen that in the kind of, the nature of knockout competition that a solid base and extreme individual quality and PSG really have that can still get you going far. You don't even have to play that well. In fact, Real Madrid are probably the proof of that over the 2014-2018 period, even though I think they did have a more cohesive system than this Paris Saint-Germain. Especially, and I get, that's always going to happen when you've basically got Modric and Cruz imposing a system on a team. But yeah, I, I do think it's 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 really Bayern Munich, and I, I do have, have to have to say, I I I find it quite a sad situation. The, the Champions League it should be about a breadth of contenders right across the continent, not concentration of quality and power in certain areas, certain pockets. And it, it was already a problem where, you know, a band of super clubs where all but and all but two of them ended up getting involved in this in these plans for a Super League back in April. But it feels like that problem has gone into another level where there's an extra band of super clubs who are, you know, the the, the the Premier League core and maybe one or two who can keep pace at any given time. Thankfully, one is Bayern Munich. But imagine Bayern Munich were going through one of their own periodic crisis points as they had in 2019 before they returned. And what would it look like then? And I actually, I have wondered in the past few weeks whether one of the kind of unintended consequences of all this or a response to Premier League power, whether there's almost some in other countries that see some sort of Super League among themselves as a necessity to counterbalance England's extreme influence. You could see that. I mean, the interesting thing is, though, I mean, you could argue that with this increasing com- English dominance of the competition, it might become less watchable. But it's actually been, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of the stuff on this year on, on BT. And there's been, yeah, there's been one or two groups that have had a bit of jeopardy about them. There's been some interest, there's been some, you know, some excellent football played in the, by one of some of the teams. There have been some quite good games and some one or two teams that you wouldn't expect to be struggling you know, in the group stages, to be struggling in the group stages. I mean, Barcelona being an obvious point, Dortmund. You know, the, so, and there's one or two groups that are quite evenly poised in terms of who's going through. So there has been some quite interesting stuff. I mean, the Liverpool group is fascinating behind Liverpool. I mean, they're obviously running away with it. But so, you, I mean, I don't know what you say, it's levelling up mediocrity below the... English teams or just a certain balance but it has become certainly the group stage has been a more interesting group stage I think than it has been for some years in that respect mm. 
let's look at, at you know, Bayern. Well, when, when I think of Bayern at the moment, I think of Robert Lewandowski. So many goals since the start of the nineteen twenty season, around one hundred and thirty, which is just a ridiculous figure. Mix, do you think he's sort of an Ibrahimovic type of player in terms of you know, durability, perhaps rather than personality, who who, who can play in, until probably he's forty? Yeah, I'd say so. And you only have to look at his physique now. Uh, to be honest, I've actually always thought of him a, le- a level above Ibrahimovic. And, and he's, all, he's also got the Champions League that Ibrahimovic doesn't. And, and, and it also, I mean, in terms of going to, to 40, it does probably help that now so much of his career, set over seven years of it, has been in what is a fairly forgiving domestic situation where, you know, Bayern are obviously in such a position of financial power there themselves. And like if you so if you talk to people around Erling Haaland, where one even though I suppose Mineriola is making almost every Super Club thing they have a chance with him, but one of the reasons why it's said he would prefer to either stay in Germany or go to Spain before an eventual move to England later in his career is because of the intensity of the English schedule. Because ultimately, when you're in a more forgive, forgiving competition in terms of the power of your club, it's it's less sapping basically, and this is something that. Lewandowski has benefited from. Now, of course, he's he's pushed himself to the limit, but it can't be overlooked that Bayern's dominance gives him that platform as well. But yeah, I think we are we could well be talking about someone that goes into the late thirties in that way. Barcelona must take a point from Bayern in Munich to progress. Glenn, what about the Xavi factor? I was just thinking that if Lewandowski plays into a forty, he might finally win the Ballon d'Or one year. <laughs> Everyone else would have retired. This has made a bit of a change at Barcelona. I think just important is what they end up playing in, in Bayern. I mean, COVID's meant the ground looks like it's going to be closed into all fans. They've got, obviously, COVID in the camp. They've had this issue yeah, around Kimmich. Yeah, they've got quite a lot of players you know, missing training and being isolated. So, and, of course, they're basically through. So it, it might not be quite as daunting a prospect as it would have appeared earlier on in the season in that respect. And, and Barca do look like, you know, obviously, Xavi's got in there and... Yeah, he's obviously turned around the support much more behind him. So you would say they've got a reasonable chance of coming through. It's going to be very odd Champions League in the last 16 if Barcelona aren't in it, I must admit. Yeah. If you look at the the broader situation, which is, you know, what we're trying to do here, I suppose, are we now in a situation where, you know, the reverence for the top two in Spain Migs is almost outdated. Yes, I would say so. Now, oh, I mean, what's happened in Spanish football is quite interesting. I mean, there are at least some parallels with what's happened in Italy, although I think Madrid have certainly navigated the situation better than Barcelona have. They got ahead of it, and they're probably they're probably helped by by their own huge megastar who has such a gravitational pull around any club he's at. And also will occupy so much of the wage bill, moving on three years earlier, in that it allowed an earlier rebuilding from Real Madrid. But I mean, ultimately, the Spanish league was for pretty much a, a for a fairly long time almost hollowed out due to the power of the big two that did become kind of a big two point five almost because of Atletico Madrid there, and they and they are the champions right now. And and they you know they went from being too big to fail to almost so big they had to fail and we are so we are it feels like we're in that kind of post-classico era now the one pity is I would say is that 
like in Italy, this time should be right for, you know, you know, finally some alternative champions to come in just to kind of increase the kind of the, the competitive vitality of Spanish football. But instead we have uh, Madrid back on top, back in power. But it's not really, it's not the Madrid of a few years ago. It's a much more diluted team. They just look, you know, they, they, they look so lacking in both style and stars compared to um, the, the English clubs, really. Now, given it's Real Madrid, given there is still that kind of uh, almost muscle memory, they're, of course they're going to be dangerous in any knockout, but I wouldn't have them close to that top band of contenders, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, Real Madrid must take a point from the final group game against Inter at the Bernabeu to top their group. Are you a bit like me, Glenn? Do you find something quite reassuring in a in a strange sort of nostalgic way that you see Carlo Ancelotti and his eyebrows out there on the touchline? Well, and it's yeah, did a pretty good job, isn't he? I mean, you know, they're, they're, what looked like would have been, as, as Mick says, an interesting title race in Spain. Suddenly, you know, they've started stringing together a whole series of wins. They're putting clear. They're playing quite decent football. Benzema's obviously having a, a good spell with them. Really sort of flourished since Ronaldo's moved on. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Everton must look wistfully at what they had. Yeah, he's he's been a very, a very good manager of those sort of high-powered, high-profile teams with those superstars in it for, for a long time and um, seems to have the knack of, of getting them to play for, and blending together a whole series of you know, powerful personalities within the unit. Yeah, and uh, yeah, one, of the, one of the old guard who's still hanging on. Yeah. When we're looking at dangerous floaters in the knockout phase of the competition, Migs, I suppose we have to include Manchester United in that, don't we? Yeah, and it's almost from the same perspective as Paris Saint-Germain. Even had they not employed uh, you know, one of these ideology coaches in Rangnick, there's just that inherent danger is that when, you, when you're wealthy enough to have some stars, individual quality can still go a long way in knockout games. Not to the same degree as it used to. I think the Champions League is a slightly different area now, era now, and especially given just how how influential having a, a, a defined ideology is. But there is still that danger there. And let, we'll, we'll see the Rangnick effect. It could be one of those situations where, I mean, I do think it is a positive that Manchester United have appointed Rangnick, although it is such an abrupt change in approach that there are no guarantees he can have a quick effect. But could we well see one of those situations where almost they're still adapting in the Premier League but just the the kind of air of a Champions League brings out something more in them, and 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 also seems kind of Rangnick exact his quality a bit more. Let, let, let's not forget, actually, beyond building two clubs at Hoffenheim and RB Leipzig, his probably most probably greatest success in the game is his run to the Champions League semi finals in twenty eleven with Schalke that did end at Old Trafford with Manchester United beating them. And well, I wouldn't have them in that top band of of challengers just because of the nature of their season. Again, like Paris Saint-Germain, there's that danger there. Probably has them actually a little bit below Paris Saint-Germain as well. But, I mean, this again comes back to what we're talking to. For for me, it almost feels like you'd have the top three favourites, or top four favourites already, yeah, those English three that are, that are currently top of the Premier League right now, Bayern Munich, Paris Saint-Germain, then a level below that, and Manchester United a level below that, and then another, another kind of band of contenders. 
if May, if May United are going to win it, I think David De Gea will probably be a shout for the Ballon d'Or because uh, yeah. he's going to do an awful lot of brilliant goalkeeper if they're going to win it because defensively they're not very good. Mm. What would you, if you're Ranić, Glenn? What would your priorities be with United? Probably the priorities are most new managers come into a club with mixed results, uh, stop conceding goals to start with, sort out the back four, become hard to beat. And that's easy in a way, United, because you've got those players on the pitch who will score goals out of very little. So you can, you can, you've can you got a reasonable shout that you're going to score some goals, even if you're focusing on the, on the, on the defence primarily in your first bit. Yeah, if you can get Maguire fit and back in confidence, that would be a, a big bonus, clearly. You've got to sort of, you know, a bit of the full-backs. There's quite a lot to do in the back four. And then the screening... Again, that midfield balance is quite tricky. So there is quite a lot to do to basically become harder to beat, is, I would say, is the main thing. I mean, games like the Watford game shouldn't be happening to a team with as many good players as United have got. You can rely on the fact that you're going to get the odd goal poached at the other end simply by because you've got such good players. So I would say that's the main thing. And But the interesting thing about the Rangley appointment and the fact that yeah they've said we will be getting another manager in is... What do they do in January in terms of buying? Who's making the decisions? Who are you buying for? Or do you buy anybody in January? Because yeah, it's a notoriously difficult time to buy players anyway. Or do you just try and work with what you've got and, uh, to the end of the season and, and see where you are and then see who the new manager is coming in and then you know, invest you know, big time in the summer? Mm. Well, they're likely to exact revenge against young boys at Old Trafford on Wednesday. Migs, if, if I was a, a Hollywood scriptwriter sitting on my well-upholstered behind in 80 degrees, I'd probably come up with a, a scenario where it's going to be, the Champions League is going to be the last hurrah for Cristiano Ronaldo. Am I um, being a little bit <laughs> optimistic? Again, I, w- I would rule it out the way these things go. And maybe along the way, I, w- I mean, one of the things that I thought basically after Especially after going to the City Paris-Saint-Germain game last week, along the way, United taking on Pochettino's Paris-Saint-Germain in one of the knockout games, potentially the last 16, just to flavour it that bit more. But <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves either. If it is to happen, United need a lot to go their way. And also we're going to have this question of how Rangnick adapts to Ronaldo and how he uses him in Europe, and I suppose as well, actually, how Ronaldo adapts to Ragnik because there, there, it, it's not just kind of a, a cliche or anything, something to say. There is quite an obvious potential tension there, given it's a manager who favours high pressing from all angles. You know, as he, as I think the, the, the famous the, the line has done the rounds a lot now, basically. I think it might be from the coach's voice. I mean, apologies if the credit isn't correct. You, either, you, you don't just press a little bit, you either, you know, it's like being pregnant. You either press or you don't press. And this is one of the issues that Ronaldo throws up because, you know, everyone's seen the stats this season. And while it, it actually maybe shouldn't have been, it shouldn't necessarily have been as big an issue as it was under Solskjaer because Solskjaer teams didn't press. Ragnick teams very much do. So it's going to be interesting to see how that's squared. But yeah, at, at, the, very, at the very least though, the fact they're getting, the fact they're through, which, you know, didn't, actually didn't look or wouldn't have looked that uh, certain without Ronaldo. I mean, ultimately... They are through because of his goals, and that that still allows for the greater debate over whether United would be in the same situation had they not signed Ronaldo. But he's forced them into the last sixteen, and uh, there's at least a little bit of momentum there. 
If you're the script writer, it's, you're going to beat Real Madrid in the final. You're going to take out probably Barcelona, City and Liverpool on the way. Or maybe um, or maybe Juve. Yeah, it's quite a tall order, though. <laughs> you're not kidding. If you look at the other sides around Ajax, they are 100% going into the final group game against Sporting Lisbon. Eric Ten Hag, you know, he's he's in the conversation for Manchester United's next manager rather than next interim manager. That a viable candidate, do you think, Glenn? Well, yes. Um, though, yeah, as, uh, I think there is an issue sometimes. You know, can managers from those smaller leagues, you know, thrive in the bigger leagues? It's quite hard to judge you know, the, the Dutch league because there's are you know there's only two or three decent teams normally. And quite a lot of players have come out of there and, and not flourished and say the same with coaches. Then again, others have. There is the issue that those big super clubs increasingly looking for people with experience of running super clubs. So you're looking at a relatively small group or people with a sort of fixed you know, body of work behind them. I would say it'd be, it'd be an interesting choice. Certainly not a wild one. And there aren't, you know, there aren't that many candidates out there that you would imagine when, you, when you're sifting through the possibilities for United and then you're ruling out all the people who you probably won't get or can't get and then you, you do they which clubs very rarely seem to do, you know, decide on a type and then go for a manager of that type or to just start working their way through a list of names who, who often don't seem to bear any kind of relationship to each other you'd have to say the way United have been running recent years doesn't fill you with an awful lot of confidence as to what they're going to end up with what about yeah, you know, the the Ajax model, Migs, their teams tend to have a, a a short window of opportunity because you know, because the best players are routinely sold. Is this a model worth cherishing in the modern world? I wouldn't say it's worth cherishing actually, because unfortunately, it's proven itself as the best possible or the optimum solution for clubs outside the elite to fight this kind of what what is ultimately kind of a crippling financial disparity in football. I mean, unlike we, we shouldn't overlook this, but just a, the basic sadness that a club of Ajax's size and potential and history is now reduced to working around this in the game and, you know, and, 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 and trying to force away through. But that is the reality of modern football. It's become one that basically everyone outside of the elite has to emulate. Dor- Dortmund have succeeded with its varying degrees. Leicester were the closest example in England and and Sevilla in Spain, but uh, Ajax have probably actually had a work to the greatest effect in Europe, given what it was a you know a, a Europa League run to the final in twenty seventeen, a Champions League run to the semi finals in twenty nineteen, and given their performances this season, I don't think we can rule anything out, bar the likelihood that come the end of the season, their best players and probably their manager will once again be picked off. Mm. What about other outstanding issues, Glenn? I suppose the you know the the most intriguing one is who finishes second to to Liverpool, which we mentioned earlier. I think I've got this right. So Atletico are in Porto, who hold a slight advantage by having five points to the others four. Milan must beat Liverpool and hope that other game is a draw, or Atletico win by the same margin or smaller, something like that. Yeah, very complicated uh, build-up, but simple question. Who finishes second? One for the goal show, isn't it? See them all going in when that's on. Well, Liverpool won five, played five, but I'd imagine he will be resting quite a lot of players 
you know, away game heading into the busy December period. So Milan have got a reasonable chance of winning that. And if they do win that, then if the other game's not as decisive, they've got a reasonable chance. How big's that fence I'm looking for? Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna go for Mil- I'm gonna go for Milan on the grounds that the other game be a draw and they might win. But having said that, Liverpool don't lose very often at the moment. This is true. The other area of of intrigue at the moment will be Group G. Migs, all four teams there: Lille, Salzburg, Sevilla, and Wolfsburg can still go through. You know, they're all clubs. They're almost, I suppose, third, fourth tier European clubs. They're all punching at about their weight, aren't they? Yeah, the point is something interesting about the Champions League, isn't it? Where the one club, or sorry, the one group without a super club is actually the most interesting group, but <laughs> conversely won't really attract the interest because it doesn't have any of the biggest names. Again, I know it's, it's, I suppose keep coming back to this theme in today's podcast, but it is a kind of dominant theme in European football now. But yeah, it, it, it is, competitively at least, it is the most fascinating group. Because even, I suppose... The big draw going into this week is going to be um, Bayern Munich-Barcelona. But the very fact that Bayern Munich are in such a position of strength and they've already qualified means that it, it, there, there is at least a possibility that game isn't as enticing as it should be. And, you know, and, and Barcelona just go out and get the result they need. And we can't really, I suppose, Benfica slipping up either. But whereas I think a lot of the real intrigue and the real excitement and where we could have one of those classic nights where you're looking, you know, you're switching between the two stadiums, it, it, it comes in Group G, although there is some possibility, I suppose, behind Liverpool as well. It's a group that escaped the Europa League, I think someone said when it first um, was drawn. <laughs> it does look yeah. like a good Europa League group. Speaking of Europa League, Glenn, Leicester lead their Europa League group. They're a point clear of Spartak, who are in Warsaw on Thursday, and Napoli. Are Leicester capable of closing the deal by winning in Naples, do you think? Well, they've come good more recently in the uh, in the competition, haven't they? Their bids have settled down a bit more. They're getting one or two players back. I mean, they're still missing a couple of key, couple of important defenders. So they're not quite there yet. But um, they have shown signs of recovering themselves recently. And we said that that's, that's a difficult place to go. But a, a point to do the trick, wouldn't it? I'd have thought. So, you know, I'd have thought they should be able to get, pick up a point there. What do you make of Leicester at the moment, Megs? They're almost if you if you looked at them really harshly, they're almost the disappointment of the of, of the the sort of top six at the moment or top eight, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but I, I do wonder whether it's just one of those classic situations where given that I mean this really shouldn't be overlooked. They they they've overachieved for so long. And because I mean but in both of those well, missing out in the Champions League was painted as a disappointment in both those seasons. The reality is they shouldn't have been that close just because of the, you know, the the, the way English football is. And it, it, and had had the actual had the seasons been reversed in the sense they started badly and finished well, I think it'd be a very different perspective of both. I think what's happened this season is almost again it's a combination of factors where there's got to have just been maybe a natural drop off. Obviously, there's been interest in Brendan Rodgers as well, which just create that little bit more uncertainty. And of course, injuries have been such a big issue. I think, particularly to to, to Fafana, I, I think there have been signs they're finding the groove again lately. And the, although I do think actually performances have been broadly quite good, even throughout this slump, and I wouldn't really have any deeper concerns. I do think they'll write themselves at the end of the season. And who knows? Actually, we might well have that reverse 
of recent seasons where this is the one where they start badly and finish well and everyone again ends up talking about the upsurge of Leicester. Mm. In the conference, the other competition, Spurs are at home to Wren. Is this a case that Antonio Conte will look around? Let's imagine he's in a, a an aeroplane which is beginning to stutter and the engine's beginning to cut out. Is he going to just basically hit the ejector button and get out of this competition, which they don't really need, although they should win it comfortably? Well, it's interesting for such a malign competition, it's provided an awful lot of entertainment for neutrals with uh, the travels of Spurs and, of course, uh, Mourinho with uh, Roma that they have gone through. Yeah, it is a competition you could do without. Having said that, it's quite embarrassing not going through. And where they're going to end up, they're going to end up playing quite a decent team coming down should they do go through because they can't come first in the group. It's going to cross his mind, but I think... You want to win games, really, and particularly if you're stuttering a bit. And interesting what sort of side he puts out. I mean, I'd imagine it will be a mixed side rather than his first-choice team with the fixtures coming up. And there will be plenty of motivation for those individual players who are very much underperformed when given opportunities in the conference so far to actually go out and show they are worth considering. Because let's suppose if, they do, if it doesn't work out, they're not going to get many other games, those players, because they're not going to risk them in the Premier League. So, yeah, it depends on the draw in the FA Cup, I suppose. But this is not quite the last chance saloon for some of the players who'll be playing, but it's getting quite close to it. Mm. Conte isn't averse to blowing things up, is he, Migs? No, no. In fact, it's, it's interesting how quickly he's gone to just talking about Spurs' general situation. Although, to be fair, that's exactly what he did at Chelsea. In the, I, 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 I was at that press conference where he started, I think he, he used the words... <laughs> Mourinho season in that in, in, in that, that <laughs> Chelsea were in danger of kind of another which is you know one of the great drive bys, boys. Uh, <laughs> and I mean I think one thing that should be, that should be overlooked with Conte, this like this isn't always a message to his own club to spend in the way that's perceived. It's also a message to his players, and it's it's attempting to to jolt them. And this is what he's trying to do with Spurs really as well. He is trying to raise standards significantly. And particularly tell the tell the players that this is what they get up to. Now, I suppose they, this game comes with kind of a, a curious situation for them, given that obviously the priority is the Premier League, and they keep kind of wavering in terms of performances. But they there is a chance of a trophy in the Europa Conference, and the problem. I mean, as 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 we saw with the, with the defeat last week. Yeah, it can start to even if it's a competition you'd willingly dispense with, it's it can still colour perceptions of a time, and it, and it did feel like it suddenly kind of left a bit of a dent in some of the progress that people felt that everything or sorry that, that Spurs had been making. Yeah, if they get to the final, I think they're all a bit quite excited. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about finals. Let's just go back to the Champions League, if we could, please, chaps. I think probably we've established who our top four will be this season. Prediction time. Who wins the Champions League this season? I'll go Liverpool. Because I think the African Cup of Nations could just affect their potential title challenge. And I also don't think they have the strength and depth of Chelsea or City. But I do think their top level is arguably higher than both. And that could come to bear in the Champions League. Mm. Glenn? Oh, I'm torn. I think I'm going to go for City simply because having come so close last year, I think they may end up seeking almost to prioritise the, the, the um, Champions League. It's it's a one thing they haven't made to get yet. 
That's true. I'd probably side with Megs on this one, and that might involve a bit of a history lesson. And there is a point to it, I promise. Liverpool won the European Cup in successive years, 77-78. They won it twice more before that unforgettable night in Istanbul in 2005, and that was one of the occasions which essentially wove the rebranded Champions League into the fabric of the club. It inspires a powerful, shared passion in players, managers and fans alike. Madrid's just another fantastic recent memory. I've got a hunch Liverpool might be eased out of a tight Premier League race, but Europe's different. St. Petersburg on May the 28th next year might be, just might be, the place to be. Do you share my optimism, Liverpool fans? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Glenn for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.